Welcome to the part two of Winners Take All, the Elite Charade of Changing the World by Anand Giridharidas. He takes us into the inner skankdoms of a new Gilded Age, where the rich and powerful fight for equality and justice any way they can, except in ways that threaten the social order and their position atop it. They rebrand themselves as saviors of the poor, they lavishly reward thought leaders who redefine change in ways that preserve the status quo, and they constantly seek to do more good, but never less harm. So the first point I want to bring up is about Carnegie's gospel, and Anand talks about this briefly. Um, he, this is quoted directly, um, and he's talking about Carnegie, and he says that he argues that inequality was the undesirable but inevitable cost of genuine progress. And so I think the logic behind this kind of goes as follows. So in order for people to create progress, you kind of need them to take a risk, right? You need them to deter from the norm. And to do so, that risk has to come with an incentive. And so whether that incentive is economic, political, social, you need to provide that incentive. So as people start to take these risks and they turn out uh, you know, for the upside and they get that reward, you will end up with an unequal world and a world filled with inequality and inequity. So what are you guys' responses to this? Do you think you kind of agree with this or is there, a way to get the, is there a way to get the best of both worlds where you have progress and you have equality? I think there isn't a way. And I definitely agree with his logic. I mean, there could be a way in this ideal world, but the way humans reason, they're not going to be, like you said, we have to take risks if we want to make progress. And no one's going to want to take a risk that could negatively affect them if there's not an upside. Right. And so specifically, just to, just to kind of uh, detail it, Carnegie kind of says that in order for the quest for progress, you need inequality. He never really makes the connection that progress equals a desirable human condition and that progress is essential. So I, I think it's important to note that when he kind of makes his arguments. All right, the next point I wanted to go into was the obsession of the day one hypothesis uh, that Anand talks about. And so he kinda, he's kind of talking to you know this Mongolian musical uh, person who's gone into finance and it's a very interesting background. And so this person um, you know, wasn't in the business market world protocol type atmosphere for the longest time and it was really new to him so he kind of looks back on his experiences and so i think some of the interesting you know for example some of the questions they ask at a mckinsey interview are you know how many ping pong balls would fit into a boeing 747 how would you estimate the size of the bolivian steel industry to be so really arbitrary um kind of to test your reasoning skills uh but what happened is you know hinton who's the the guy from mongolia he kind of says that, you know, instead of being attuned to the intuitions and reading the social room and, and maybe looking to an expert, you're expected to have these high, high day one hypotheses about the world and come to conclusions immediately. And I do see that a lot, right? So do you guys think it's important to, uh, you know, kind of be immersed in a field and atmosphere or, or is it more important to come up with your hypotheses day one? I think if we're talking about which is more important, it's definitely more important to be immersed and the atmosphere, like he was very shocked with this kind of reasoning because he would usually want to work with like the people rather than just trying to help people and deciding how you help them. They just wanted them to decide for the other people how to help them. And the way coming from Mongolia, he thought that it was much more beneficial to actually work with the people they're helping to see how, what, how they feel, what would help them. So that's a much better strategy than just trying to do it on your own. And I think the conclusion of you know getting to like know who is affected by the problem and then going to them that is a result of you know not being obsessed with the day one hypothesis and and knowing that you actually don't know 
and that your reasoning may be flawed because someone else has been in this uh, been in the atmosphere for so much longer. This goes back to just being open-minded. Um, sometimes being open-minded and listening to other people rather than presenting an opinion yourself is something that can make you look less confident um, or uh, less knowledgeable, like I'm sure these consulting firms want to appear like. Um, but it's also something that's very important to addressing a problem in the right way. Yeah, I think it's, uh, I guess, going back to the last book we read, Principles by Ray Dalio, um, he says like the the ego barrier, right? And that that's a cause of a lot of, uh, you know, finding things that are not true in the world because you don't want to be wrong. Something that kind of connects to this argument here. So the next point I want to make is it, it relates to cinnamon, uh, you know, the very popular uh, sugary, I don't think it's donut, but anyways, they create these treats that are super unhealthy. And so somebody who was running Cinnabon, and I think it was kind of a private equity firm, uh, she starts to talk about Cinnabon, and she makes the argument uh, as as goes. So she says, if places like these, referring to Cinnabon and, and a lot of the other unhealthy and kind of, you know, not good for the world companies, says if places like these are going to exist in a free market, and what mattered was how they were run, then not working there would solve nothing. It would in fact increase the likelihood that the wrong leaders pursuing the wrong how would end up in your stead. So what that means is that essentially, uh, it's kind of the argument we touched on last week's podcast, which is that someone's going to do it anyways. Why not you? If you think you can do a 5% better job, that's 5% more moral or give back to the community 5% more, then why do it? And I I think it's this concept of demand-based markets, right? And the fact that if there's demand, there's got to be supply. What I do think it, it, it kind of is a scary logic, right? Because it, it's the same logic that's used when people talk about voting. It's like, how, how is my vote going to change anything? Um, and, and if you go by that logic, it's kind of risky, right? Because if everybody's thought like that, then obviously you would end up in, a, in an unjust world. And so it takes a few courageous people. You know, maybe it's the person that's running Cinnabon or even... Anand to, to speak out about these issues. I think it really has to start with the courageous few that can kind of drive the innovation for the rest of the world. I think that's definitely true. I honestly have the belief that these kind of really sugary products that aren't good for the American health is kind of inevitable in a way that we can we can kind of gain progress towards healthier products, but unhealthy products are always going to be there. There's always, it's like ingrained in the American culture to like these snacks, these sugary drinks. And I think if you see yourself as someone who could lead towards change in the future, it might as well be you to start those companies and kind of slowly take them into make them less, more healthy as you continue. But someone is going to create those products, I think. So, Andrew, you're actually a fan of like the demand-based markets and the idea that like you know you should take over and adopting the status quo to change the status quo. Is that what you're saying? Well, I'm not a fan that people are being unhealthy and eating these unhealthy foods and that people think that their vote doesn't matter. That's not what I'm a fan of. But I do agree with the idea that people are going to make sweets and people are going to buy sweets. What's the alternative that um, you're presenting, uh, Riz? Because like, I think this is a super interesting question, but what's the alternative? Yeah, so I think Anand, I think in the whole book, he doesn't, he kind of criticizes all these things uh, and he doesn't really provide an alternative. And, and I think that is not a bad thing. Maybe the book is meant just to criticize and just to, um, you know, kind of show inequality in the world. But to me, the, uh, you know, the, the opposite of that is to 
have a collective that just completely abandons. Um, and, and obviously going to sugary products is a little bit confusing because it's biologically driven to like these kind of sweets. But the idea is that you basically just revolt against the institutions um, and the status quo with just, a, with just a few, and maybe that's Anand and then some of his colleagues, but that's the alternative, right? It's radical change versus incremental change through using the status quo. I think that's another important idea. I'd like to hear what you guys have to say about you know, the status quo exists. And so, you know, you don't want to be the only fool, fool in the room, right? That's what Anand says about some of these people is that they're, they're afraid of that. If the status quo exists, what, are you just going to revolt against it and then waste your life and, and nothing's going to change? Or do you actually go after the institutions? And so how much do you play to the status quo to improve the status quo? I think you're nailing it on the head right there with this, um, these two types of change, this gradualism, um, and or these, you know, big leaps. Uh, I tend to sort of believe, uh, be in the camp of um, change is gradual, um, especially when it comes to the type of change that he's talking about. Uh, and, you know, it's this whole idea of, like, I think, cognitive dissonance um, and the fact that acceptance is slow, right? Um, people aren't going to accept two things that are, uh, you know, totally opposite. So getting people to um, gradually be on board with you um, and gradually accept your ideas is, I think, a much quicker way to change. Well, I think that the whole thing that we're talking about, about, you know, trying to go against the status quo to create change, the debate that one has with themselves is all about how much can I do? How, what is it, how much can I do by not getting in this business? How much is me doing that? What is that going to do for the world? Or me taking this vote like we talked about, what is that going to do for the world? So when talking about should I go against the status quo, a lot of people don't because they say it's just me doing that and what is that going to do for these problems? Yeah, I, I think that's kind of the logical fallacy you can fall into because it does take certain people, right, to make change. Going back to incremental versus radical change, I think one thing that's kind of interesting to think about is that going to the type of change that's radical gets to the root cause very quickly. Incremental change can sometimes just treat the symptoms without getting at the root cause because you're kind of like, oh, let's fix this, let's fix this, instead of look at our system. This is extremely, you know, equity is a big problem here. Inequality is a big problem here. Uh, and so that radical change pushes for, you know, curing the, the disease and not just treating the symptoms. So that's something to keep in mind. Um, I, I, I think that's, I think that's, I think that's a good point when it comes to getting at the root of the problem. But when it comes to getting other people on board with this, with the uh, solution that you're presenting, um, I think that this is, you isolate a lot of people by having these polarizing views. I think you can see this a lot in our politics right now, where we have people who, instead of trying to find their common ground and create gradual change, are increasingly presenting more radical, uh, you know, treatments to our problems. And that's very isolating for a lot of people. So I think, um, yeah, in some ways you can connect unity and isolation to this idea as well. I think I think radical change and the quest for radical change and, and the, the prominence and I guess the political atmosphere is a direct result of the how poor your situation is, right? I think if you're in a terrible situation, let's say politically in your country, the idea of changing it radically, right? I mean, inherently is going to be more common because there's more problems to be fixed. So I think as we see the rise of you know, these radical standpoints, I don't know how much it has to do with uh, the, I guess, the, the political psych of, uh, of these people or the actual situation of the United States of America and how much worse it, it has gotten in some aspects, obviously. Um, I thought another point that um, 
Anon brought up that was really good um, is sort of the uh, diversity that's needed when approaching uh, uh, diversity from a leadership perspective um, that's needed when approaching these um, these big problems and finding their solutions. Um, to me, I thought it was very interesting. One of the points he brought up is, um, or what I sort of extrapolated off his point, um, is this idea of it's not necessarily, um, you know, the, the, the race of the people, the ethnicity of the people who are working on the ideas, but it's the type of thinking that they bring to the table and it's their life experiences as well. So um, to me, I, you know, I, he, I think he makes the argument that a lot of the people who are tasked with solving these big world problems are these consulting people um, or these, you know, uh, big market world people. Uh, and there's not a diversity in thought and there's not a diversity in approach. Um, and I thought that was sort of a good redefinition of uh, diversity being more a uniqueness of perspectives and ways of approaching things rather than something that's just, uh, you know, diversity through race and diversity um, through gender and things like uh, the ways we commonly classify diversity. Yeah, I think it relates to two things we've talked about in the past. One, in venture, the difference between diversity and inclusion and it also relates to the idea of meritocracy because it's not about the diversity of their skin or that. It's that that represents something. That means they had different experiences, different cultural backgrounds, different ways of thinking. And ultimately, by hearing their ideas, by including them, you can get to the best ideas rather than just having a diverse looking group of people. You can get their diverse uh, ideas. Yeah, so I think the ultimate goal there is to get perspective. But obviously, what's the direct... Uh, thing you have to do in order to achieve that you have to have diversity in people so I think diversity in people is kind of just like the first order consequence and then the diversity in thought that can actually evolve an organism or an organism you know, I'm referring to an organization kind of like this ever-changing is the key to that is to have this difference in thought uh, I do think towards the end of the book there's this really interesting point that comes up and you know a lot of the times when people talk about diversity and they say that you know diversity is not just good for the individual but it's good for the whole and they're not making the case for morals, but rather they're saying that, you know, okay, sure, you can try to push diversity, uh, for example, bringing, um, you know, women into the STEM fields more. And so they make the case, yeah, this could help you. But then at the same time, these thought leaders are making the case that, guess what, that's the new branding thing to do. And that'll boost your stock performance. And what Anand or one of, the, one, one of his colleagues says is that that's actually one of the worst things you can do. And, you know, being being reasonable to the point where, you escape morals by arguing that it's actually beneficial for the individual, meaning it's good for the organization, is a bad thing to do because you're structuring a society where morals don't come first. Does that make sense? It's probably, it's just a terrible thing to do to say like that's the reason that it's good just because it looks good. I think that's like a bad reason to have diversity. And I think it's much more important to get at the actual benefits. I mean, maybe you can say those are benefits, cosmetic benefits, you know, you'll be more well-regarded, more... Uh, people appreciate that you're hiring diverse people, but I think there should be a lot greater of a focus on the real intrinsic benefits that comes with having a diverse group of people, getting their diverse um, ideas based off their backgrounds and so on. So going back to the like going back to the conversation we just had like a second ago, is what like kind of the argument we we're making is that immoral? Is is that kind of immoral in a sense? The fact that we weren't looking to diversity for moral reasons, but rather looking to it for kind of selfish reasons, where it could benefit the organization. I think those are the wrong reasons, to be honest. I don't know if it's moral or immoral, but I think it's the wrong reason. I think the case for diversity is much more than cosmetic. 
I'm going to play devil's advocate here and say that um, it, it's not selfish to, uh, to go for diversity for the benefit of the organization. Um, and uh, to, to me, I, I, I think, yes, you know, it's important to have moral codes and treat people with respect and things like that. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the argument for the power of diversity in actually making it, uh, helping an organization function better um, is so strong uh, that I, I, I don't think that, you know, th- this, this sort of, this moral argument that sort of could hinder at the organization's ability to be efficient and to progress is strong enough. Yeah, I think if everybody had strong morals, making the moral argument is the way to go. But at the end of the day, um, I guess these thought leaders are like, what can we do, right? We can't make everybody moral in the world. Let's go with an argument that appeals to their more selfish side. Um, and so obviously there's a long-term consequence is that you're moving towards a society that goes away from morals and, and away from justice to what's good for me. Uh, but I think that the immediate result of that switch, that, that, that change in um, narrative from do it for your, do it for morals to do it for yourself can actually result in good things. So I think, I, I don't know, Rowan kind of started his argument by saying, I'm going to play devil's advocate. And I would be cautious to say that even is devil's advocate, because I think they may have a stronger Strong, stronger like uh, reasoning for that argument. The last point I wanted to make was about complacency and uh, is being complacent to the system evil? We touched on this a bit earlier, but what are your immediate thoughts, right? Is, is living in a society and, and, and making it for yourself immoral? I, I think my personal belief is that, um, that really like it's at the core of human purpose to take in the uh, to take in account the needs of others, um, and this goes back to the moral system that um, I think you know we, we should have, which is that uh, you know we everyone we should we, our number one priority as a collective should be looking out for the well being of everyone in you know um, everyone on our team. You know if you if you're a team sport player at all, you've played team sports, um, you know it's about more than just yourself, right? I think life is really, it's a team sport where we're all playing on the same team and we all have to be looking out for our teammates. Yeah, I was going to say, so like making the case for playing as a team, are, are you saying that then being complacent for yourself is immoral? Is that the wrong thing to do? Um, like, so like you being um, successful in a society and then not working to help others is that what you're suggesting yeah are you claiming that that's you know the wrong thing to do yeah i would i would argue that um and that's like my my personal beliefs i think it's um in in my in my opinion and i'm sure like there's a bunch of hypocrisy here um but uh i think like philanthropy shouldn't be seen as like a good thing to be doing it should be seen as like the norm um giving back to people should not be um something that you get praised for it should be something that um, really hits at the core of uh, your humanness um, and is something that is an enjoyable experience for you, um, with even without the praise. I think the whole idea about this book and what we're talking about is that people want to help, people want to create change, but why we've come into this win-win society where people feel like they can um, create change while not really harming themselves is because when we're considering how people want to make change, they want to do it in ways that have the least harmful impact on themselves. They want to feel like they're helping 
while it's not hurting themselves. So I think to go to your first point about is it immoral, I think that that's why people are donating in this way, in these win-win ways, because they feel like they're being moral because they're giving back, but in the same at the same time, they're benefiting off the system that's creating inequality in the world. Yeah, I, I think looking at those individuals plays a, is a little bit tricky. Um, and I, that's why there's a you know 300 book on it called Winners Take All that we're talking about. But I think going back to the point where is it immoral to not fight injustice? Now, that's a very interesting point. I think even as like third graders, we learn about, you know, bullying situations at school and being the bystander is sometimes as be as bad as being the bully. Right. And, and that, you know, even when you go back to the context of racism, being a slave owner in, in a society, even though you weren't pushing more to have slaves, if you were complacent in that system, you were just as racist, right? I, I think it's a, or maybe not just as racist, but you were very racist. Um, and that not fighting an unjust system is immoral. So I, I think that's a, that's a broader point to make. Well, I, I would just caution that last example just because of, um, I think, the sort of the you can only be as good as your times argument. Um, but because, uh, I, 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 you know, I think standards evolve um, but to me, when you see sort of that path to, okay, this is what I can do to really help people. This is what I can, when you know, like, cause like it, it's, it's not that, uh, these really rich people, these really successful people, successful people don't know what they're doing when they're exploiting the system. They do know what they're doing. They're just trying to save face in the public eye by, you know, by being charitable, um, and through all these, uh, other efforts. But I think when you, un when you actually understand um, the harm you're doing and you are, are com you are, you know, uh, fine with that. I think that's when, that's when, um, this complacency becomes really harmful. So my question is, what do you suggest they do? I mean, they're smart people, they're successful and now they want to help. I mean, they're already a part of this system and they could have helped people too, but the overall system is contributing to inequality. So what do you suggest they do? Yeah, I think you do your part and you get out of the system. You don't get into these industries that benefit the elite, right? And that is the definition of being selfless, right? You step out of your industry of, of success and your personal path in order to kind of break down the system. Maybe you get, you know, maybe public policy becomes more common as a result of this. Wait, so like if you, if you were Bill Gates right now, you'd step out of the system? Well, I... I think what I think Bill actually I think it's an interesting point about Bill Gates. First of all, like Anand doesn't attack Bill Gates um, and what he's doing, which is one of the most philanthropic efforts in the world, probably the most. Okay, um, just substitute in yeah, right, a right, rich right. person. Right. So, um, I think once you recognize that the, the the system is broken, and even at the very start, if you do before you've even gone into it, it's kind of your job to step out of it. I mean, let's think. Let's think of someone. He's creating computers. I mean. For, for me, for me, this, this isn't necessarily like, it's an interesting question to ask, you know, what would you do about it? Um, but that's really not what this book is about. And it's an interesting take because, you know, we oftentimes talk about like constructive criticism, um, where like you can tell, like sort of hint at the ways that people can improve. Um, I think it also goes back to, uh, uh one of Anand's point, which is the, uh, intellectual versus the, um, thought leader. Is that, is that correct, Ars? 
Yeah, it was something along those lines. But yeah, the intellectual being someone who like criticizes society, and the thought leader being someone who presents solutions that um, don't ha- like that sort of don't fix the deep rooted co- uh, causes of the problem. I think Anand's being an intellectual here in showing us the problems, not necessarily offering uh, ways that we can solve them, but saying, "Hey, th- these are the problems. This is what's going on." Sort of like you can take it from here. I think if there is one solution that he presents, it's the deterring from the privately owned uh, and kind of like the capitalist movement of today. And that instead moving towards a society where, you know, public policy maybe makes the, the everything generally is going to be more public. So I think I think his solution is, is very left leaning um, because he argues for government, governmental change instead of private changes. It's left leaning, but it's not like he also references how Bill Clinton and all these other people have made this move um, when it comes to sort of like social justice and, um, you know, all, all these other charitable efforts of not not having the government involved in doing it all privately. So I think it's sort of left leaning in the sense of bigger government, right, um, where the government has more influence and they take on more responsibility. Um, but it's not left leaning in sort of like the way that the, the left and the right have gone in terms of um, philanthropy. Also, I think as much as he makes a good argument, about how public policy might be the right way to go. I don't think at all that he's saying that it is the way we're going. I think he's throughout the book just proving, like Rowan said, how Bill Clinton and all these people, Obama, they would hire people from like McKinsey to solve their problems, people from the market world. And I definitely don't think he's saying that's the direction we're going in. I think he's just pointing it out how um, these new levels of donating back are contributing to problems. All right, and with that, we will see you next podcast with 21 Lessons for the 21st Century.